The Ten Commandments are still held by many to be a wise and moral code that we should respect and honor. But what is their significance today, and what can they teach us about the heart of God? Find out today on the Central Baptist Podcast. Before we uh, start into today's um, message, can I just share with you a very personal word? I want to thank you as a congregation for your um, your attentive ear that you've extended to me over these last six weeks or so. Someone once asked me, how do you know if you've got the gift of teaching? I said, you need to find a group of people with the gift of listening. And you've expressed that, so thank you. This series on the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, has some challenging ideas, and I, I know that. You listen well, and I thank you for that and for the responses that I've received. Um, I'll be honest, tell you, today's message is probably one of the most difficult I've prepared for many, many years. You'll know why when we get into it. It brings issues and topics that you seldom hear addressed in church. But I think they're important for us. Obviously, in Ten Commandments, we have ten messages. But we're going to pause after this one. This is number six. And we're going to take a pause after this Sunday. And we will turn into the series of Advent for the four Sundays of Advent and the Christmas New Year. And then we'll return to uh, the last of this section in this series in the second Sunday of January. In Greek mythology, Hermes was the messenger of the gods. He brought the message down from the gods to Mount Olympus. So this morning, I'd like to start by taking you to a short visit to a class in what we call hermeneutics, which means interpreting the Bible. It's got kind of four movements to this class that you'll see this morning. And uh, the first one is coming up. We believe that the Bible has got eternal truth. But that eternal truth is really expressed in the then on which it was written. It always touches down in time and culture. The Bible always incarnates itself in life. It's not a book about philosophy. It earns its message in the people and the history of its time. And when we encounter a text or a story, we find it was written for that particular context. And we need to examine that context. But we also believe that the Bible is written for the now. And so it speaks into our world and comes to us across this eternal line into the now of our world. Do I get that arrow? No, there it is. Thank you. It speaks in then, but also speaks into now. The times and the culture in which we live and does that through the work of the Spirit. And so our need is for a word from God today to our culture, our generation. And so we're often asking, what is the Bible saying to us today? The great temptation, particularly for evangelicals, such as ourselves, is how do we understand this? And our great temptation is that we sometimes take this biblical truth and we bring it across from the times of the Bible into our time, just like that. We think the arrow goes kind of straight across over 2,000 years of changing culture. And then very simply, we drop it into our culture, which is so vastly different. Most of the time we do this, we unintentionally do violence to what the Bible may actually be saying and meaning in its original setting. So when we drop it into our culture, the application we find for it may be very wrong. You see, moving the ancient text across 2,100 years and more 
is not a simple matter. For example, for many years, when they did this, moved straight across, slave owners in America and also in Britain found evidence for slavery by simply saying, it's in the Bible. I think we've often done the same violence to women who were told that they should not wear jewelry or earrings. Why? It's in the Bible. Other texts say that women should have head coverings in church. Why? It's in the Bible. Other texts declare that women are to be silent in church. Why? It's in the Bible. So you see, going straight across can lead to some distortion and misapplication of a text, a passage. What do we do? Here's what we have to do. We have to examine the truth in its original context. And then we have to lift that message out of its context, above this line, and into an area which is eternal. This dotted line, by the way, moves up and down. And so we come to, it's asked, we need to ask, what is the eternal truth in this? And then we bring that eternal truth into the times and the life, the culture in which we live. And as we do that, the internal truth, unchanging truth of God needs to earth itself in the times in which we live. Now that's the work of hermeneutics. And that process is essential for what we'll study and grasp this morning. As we continue the Ten Commandments, the sixth word from God is really just two words in Hebrew. No killing. No killing. And instantly, we're tempted to, to, to lift that command out of its time and context and drop it into our world. And so you bring that up and you plunge yourself instantly into the complexities of such questions as, what about capital punishment? What about war? What about abortion? What about stem cell research or medically assisted suicide? What do we do with these things? There are about 10 different Hebrew words to describe different kinds of killing, such as to smite, to attack, to slaughter, to kill in war. And the primary reason given is that you will be destroying and hurting and killing the image of God in that person. There are some 18 different offenses for which the death penalty is called for. There are cities of wretches set up in the Old Testament for incidents of accidental death, where the killer will get the protection from society. My sense is that we are often tempted to find simplistic answers for today's complex ethical issues from these two words, no killing. Remember, we're just bringing a truth straight across into our culture. So what must we do? I believe in the process of hermeneutics, we must start looking into the command of the scriptures, the command of a passage, the teaching of a text, and ask, what is at the heart of this? What is the eternal truth that lies inside this? And I believe that we can do this often by turning the truth, as it were, inside out. You move often from the negative to the positive. We'll do that the next few commandments. And at the heart of this biblical commandment not to kill is a positive truth. At the center of our being is a sacred reality. And it is this, that we are made in the image of God. The Latin phrase is imago dei, the image of God. And when we examine this truth about no killing, we are invited to a sacred space a sacred time, a green, lush garden 
to understand the depth and the unique meaning of this that comes from the breath of God. It comes in Genesis 2-7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So the questions never leave us. Who am I? Where do I come from? Where am I going? There's an English poet called Matthew Arnold who captures that for me. He says, but often in the world's most crowded street, but often in the den of strife, there rises an unspeakable desire. After the knowledge of this buried life, a thirst to spend our fire and restless force in tracking our true original goal, a longing to inquire into this mystery of the heart which be so wild, so deep in us to know whence our lives come and where they go. So what do we learn if we visit this garden for a few minutes this morning? I think, first of all, we must value the sacredness of our own identity, our own person. I believe that Genesis 127, it'll come up in a moment, is a hinge upon which all of our understanding of life turns. This gives us the value and the meaning of our personhood. It's really three lines in Hebrew poetry, and each one has got four beats. The lines are, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let me suggest to you this morning that we're given three profound things in this simple but profound mystery of what it means to be created imago dei, in the image of God. First of all, we're given the gift of identity. People talk about trying to find themselves. They've trudged around the world, often to places like India, to find themselves. The truth is, we really only know who we are in our relatedness to God. People talk about trying to find themselves, find God. And the search for many people for identity is often merely sociological. Who am I in my relatedness to other people? Rather than theological. Who am I in my relatedness to God? We need to see ourselves as a seamless tapestry of body, soul, and spirit. We are woven together into a single identity. We cannot separate ourselves. We cannot take ourselves apart from our unique oneness. We're not just bits of Lego that are kind of stuck together. This is a vital step in our process towards wholeness. I think we're also given the gift of sanctity. Life is sacred. Life is not an accident. Life is stamped with the stamp of God. Your life is stamped. My life is stamped with the stamp of God. We bear his mark. He has impressed his very being, his very image upon who we are. We're given thirdly the gift of sexuality. Male and female, he created them, says in Genesis. We're made male and female, which is far more than just a physical reality. Maleness and femaleness is woven to who we are as people. One of the very real tragedies in life has been the separation of our physical nature from our spiritual nature, and especially in the divorce of sexuality from spirituality. 
The church in history did not know what to do with the fact that we are physical and sexual people as well as people of the spirit. Our struggle is that we followed what's called the dualism of Greek anthropology, soul and spirit, rather than a Hebrew anthropology, which is a Hebrew understanding of ourselves, which says that we are a seamless tapestry. That's the challenge. Greek anthropology or a Hebrew anthropology. If that's a struggle for you, I just got to say that requires really a sermon all by itself. Do you know that the Bible devotes an entire book to sexuality and to lovemaking on a wedding night? It's called the Song of Solomon. It is the story of physical love without lust. It's the story of passion without pornography. Imago Dei involves our sexuality. This was not something that came after the Paul. It came as part of creation. But this Imago Dei is a delicate gift that can be easily broken and distorted. Just like a mirror that can fall and break into a hundred different pieces. So you see, we can murder ourselves if we're not careful in a thousand acts of doubt and self-destruction. Suffocating this Imago Dei, this sacred image of God stamped upon us. You can start to say over and over again in the dark silence of depression, I am no good. I am nothing. I am worthless. Have you ever done that to yourself? Perhaps in a time in a darkness of depression. Have you ever silently killed yourself? The last rung of the ladder that we stand on as human beings is hope. And we, when we lose hope, we find ourselves standing in the quicksand of hopelessness. My wife Harriet often says when we lived close to downtown Vancouver and here in Victoria again, Harriet sometimes says, look into the eyes of those who you see living on the streets crawling out of a tent. What you see is hopelessness. I do not know what's going on in each of your lives right now. But perhaps some of you right now are struggling in that deep, dark well of depression that I also have struggled in. Perhaps you feel the light of God is slowly being eclipsed out of your life and you feel darkness coming over you. This morning, I plead with you. I plead with you. Know that in the depth of your soul, you are loved more than you know. And you're valued more highly by God than you could ever, ever imagine. Each of our lives is a unique treasure. And so we need to value the image of God in our lives. Look deeply into the face of God's love in Jesus and know that without a shred of doubt, you are valued and you are loved. Do not throw yourselves away in any way. The truth is no killing, starting with ourselves. It also means that we must value our sacred relationships within the community of faith. There are a lot more forms of murder that do not need a gun or a knife. 
They don't leave any bloodstains. There's no corpse, but there's still a victim. The original command, no killing, was given to a nation that would wage war on God's orders, sometimes drove nations out on God's orders. But within their own borders, among their own people, as a covenant nation of God, there was to be a superior conduct, a new relationship, a higher ethic. In other words, no killing. When we bring that truth across the years into the family and into the church, There's to be no killing with words. No homicide with gossip. No murder using sarcasm as a weapon. No assassination assassination with anger. Now there are biblical ways to disagree. There are biblical ways to resolve disputes. Disagreement. We must find them and use them. But Jesus says, You've heard it said, we said to people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with his brother, let's add sister, will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, you will be in danger of the fire of hell. You know, people look for churches for a lot of different reasons. Maybe they're family. Maybe they're struggling with something. I think the one thing we all have in common is when we come to church and into a church community like Central Baptist here, we're looking for safety. We want the church to be a safe place, a safe place for our children, for our babies in the nursery, a safe place for ourselves. The church is to be a sanctuary which values and protects the sacred life of God in each of us. We are brothers and sisters together in Christ. But beneath that, there's even a more fundamental truth. We are people in whom the image of God is being restored and renewed. We're being transformed from image to image into the same glory. We're called in the highest way to value and guard the sacred gift of the image of God in each one and every one of our lives. To respect the dignity at the deepest level. The image of God in every person you see here, every person is to be valued for their own unique identity. We're not to raise our voices against them in anger. No biting words that hurt and leave us bleeding. We're to value each person you see, whether we agree with them at times or not. We're to treat one another with godly respect and value. So the next time we even think about raising a voice in anger to someone that we've worshipped with, stop and remember, there will be no killing This must be a safe and a sacred place. We will strive for the sacred dignity of all humanity. This means that we live in a world today of spent sacred forces. Do you realize that? We live in a world of spent sacred forces. Our society has largely lost touch with the sacredness of life. And the loss of the sacred means the almost total disappearance in our collective consciousness as a society of the sense of there being a sacred presence among us in which we live and move and have our being. We confess that we are often no more than moral pygmies. The Russian philosopher was right. If God is dead, then everything 
Everything is permissible. So here are some ethical issues we struggle with. What about abortion? It's the loss of the sacred that plunges us into the abortion debate. When we lose the commitment that humanity is created imago dei, we lose the divine perspective on the value of life from its very beginning. So when some unplanned life is a nuisance, an unwanted interruption in our schedule, it can simply be flushed out. Abortion at its core is not a medical issue. It's a theological and a spiritual issue. Or at the other end of the spectrum, it's the loss of the sacred that would some might allow someone to come and visit me one day and send me an email and say, Tom, we think you've lived long enough. You're getting too old. You're no longer an asset. In fact, in the term of healthcare costs, you have become a liability. So we had a meeting this week, and guess what? We voted. You lost. And you have three months to get your affairs in order, say goodbye to your wife and family. What if that becomes our new brave world? Sex and sexuality. The loss of the sacred robs marriage of that one true unique identity. The integrity of sexual intimacy. When we lose the sight of the fact that we're made in the image of God as sexual beings, then sexuality loses its sacred connection to and within marriage. Sexual intercourse becomes an interesting and satisfying encounter between two bodies to gratify the sex pleasure of one. Sex is not something we do. Rather, it is who we are. We need to remember that sex was created before the fall, not after it. Doing some digging, originally I, I always understood there were two genders, genders, the binary of masculine and feminine. I looked up Google this week and gave me a range of answers all the way up to 87 genders. I don't know what they all are. Within our own family, we have several relatives who belong to the gay community and have established relationships with the same-sex partner. Harry and I respect them and love them, but we disagree with their sexual choices. But that disagreement does not make us homophobic. One of the most challenging issues we face today is what's called gender dysphoria, particularly amongst young people, teenagers, who want to change their own sex from female to male or male to female. By the way, females to males, they do it two to one over males wanting to change. There's a clinic in England called Tavistock, which has been very aggressive in this area. One example from it, a young teenage girl wanted to be a boy. So to assist her desire, she was given a mastectomy. She was also given puberty blockers which stop her menstrual periods. Several years later, she decided she actually didn't want to be a boy. She would rather go back to being a girl. The National Health Service, which oversees the whole medical world in Britain, has closed Tavistock. They've concluded that there's what they call 
this gender incongruence has what they call a transient phase, which may not persist into and through adolescence. In Scotland, there's a similar clinic called Sandyford. It's been challenged for prescribing puberty blockers to children as young as nine, referring parents, young teenagers, to irreversible sex change surgery. Recently in Ireland, a teacher was jailed because he would not call a young female in his class by the male name that she wanted. He said that was against his Christian convictions. Girl transitions, wanting transitions, as I say, two to one over boys. I will be honest, I find the whole area of trans transsexuality um, complicated, medically, physically, rationally, theologically. A problem we have today is suicide. It should be no surprise to us that suicide is one of the highest killers of young people, young people in Amer North America. It is the leading cause of death in China. Because when life becomes utilitarian, not only can we murder others, we can murder ourselves. We have what's called MAID, M-A-I-D, medical assistance in dying. Some of you older folks may remember the case here in BC of Sue Rodriguez, the early 1990s, suffering from ALS. And so she wanted medical assistance to end her life. The Supreme Court in Canada denied her appeal. But however, in February 1994, with, in the presence of a member of parliament, she committed suicide anyway. The Medical Assistance and Dying Act was passed in 2016. At the same time that Sue Rodriguez was in the process to end her life, Harriet and I had a very good friend in Calgary who was struggling with the same disease. But he was in a much worse condition than Sue Rodriguez was. And so he wrote and published a long, thoughtful article in the Calgary Herald in which he presented his case that he did not have the right to take his own life, and that that right belonged only to God. Calgary Herald published the entire article. I'll be honest this morning, I do not pretend to have easy answers for these complicated medical and social issues. But it is the loss of the sacred that gives us this unlimited potential of medical, medical technology, often without the guidance of morality. The fact that we know how to do things because we have the technology is not always a good enough reason to do them. So we end up with what's called the ethics of pragmatism and the amoral philosophy of utilitarianism, which simply means the end justifies the means. Every death in the world should bring tears to our eyes because it means that the image of God in some person is being rubbed out. Every child who dies of hunger and disease should move us to tears because we believe that the image of God, Imago Dei, is being trampled on. That sacred stamp, that holy imprint, and each of our lives is being violated. My simple sense is that our prodigal culture 
That's what I call it today. We live in a prodigal culture. It has lost the sense of sacredness. And so we find ourselves in the biggest muddle we've ever been in. God calls his covenant people, his holy people, to be the guardians of this divine stamp in our lives, to be the protectors of this sacred tattoo. Today we are far, far from that sacred garden where life was originally formed and shaped in the image of God. We are far, far from the place where the hand of God left his gentle fingerprints on our very being, reminding us that we are, as Psalm 139 says, fearfully and wonderfully made. But we can't turn back because an angel has been sent to guard the way back into the garden. So what does it mean? What does it mean to live with this renewed awareness of the sacredness of life, to feel the unseen stamp of God deep within our lives? How do we reach again such a sacred understanding of life? Well, we started in the garden, made in the image of God. That imago dei was broken by the fall, not lost completely, but shattered into a hundred, a thousand pieces like some broken mirror. And into this world came Jesus. You know what Colossians says of Jesus? He was made in the image of God. He is made imago dei. And then as we invite him into our lives, now catch this. Catch this. Colossians says, we are being renewed according to the knowledge of the image, according to the knowledge of the image of creator. You see, the image of God is once again being renewed and restored, rediscovered in us. Here is the final cosmic irony. The ultimate satire of the plot in another garden called Gethsemane. We can receive the gift of this life through a murder. Jesus made in the image of God, who came and who gave himself for the sins of the world, who chose to become of a victim of a murder to do so. He allowed himself to be betrayed and captured and hung on a cross. He allowed death and murder to be the way of life for us. He returned to the Father so that the breath of the Spirit would come again to the earth. So as we close, just a moment, would you stand with me? Can I ask the worship team to come? And so just as God bent down in the garden, and breathed into Adam, and he became a living being. Once again, God desires to bend down and breathe into the dusty shell of our lives, his sacred breath. And our, fresh, our flesh starts to breathe in a new way, in a clean way, 
as the spirit of God fills our lungs and our souls, our bodies. And we become like Adam, a living soul made again in Dei, in the image of God. A couple of weeks ago, I wrote that in my study. And I began to cry. I just saw again in a moment of epiphany that this mirror in me that was shattered in the fall, its pieces are carefully put back together again by this Jesus for each one of us who loves us he gave himself for us so that we might be restored. We might recover what it means for our lives to be stamped as the image of God. Imagine this morning, each God comes around the rows, each one of you, and he pokes you with your finger and he says, you're made in the image of God. Phil, and hear it. I don't know all your names, but you're made in the image of God. And you're made in the image of God. You're made in the image of God. And as he breathes into his spirit, into us again, we are sacred people. No killing. No killing. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Podcast.